Ever feel like you're missing out on the day's biggest news? Stay in the loop with our Take a Break newsletter. Each weeknight, we curate the most important stories in media, tech, and everything in between. You'll always be in the know on the day's key trends. Sign up for Take a Break for free at kindredmedia.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is KindredCast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree. For more insightful content, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Today, LionTree Chairman and CEO Arie Borkov speaks with Sebastian Simiantkowski, the CEO and co-founder of Swedish fintech unicorn Klarna. The company's buy now, pay later model has seen massive growth during the pandemic as e-commerce platforms and the monetization of influence has dramatically evolved. Sebastian shares fascinating insights about leadership and tells Ari about the time he was invited to speak to a gathering of Swedish bankers to tell them how his company was going to displace them. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of KindredCast. I'm Arya Borkov, and we are going cross-border to one of my favorite places in the world, to uh, Sweden, a hotbed for technology and to Stockholm. And I'm joined today by a fantastic CEO, Sebastian Siemenkowski, who co-founded one of the uh, hottest unicorns in the market, the, the biggest in Europe today, a fintech and payments company called Klarna. You may recognize Klarna from it's a recent Super Bowl advertisement. And uh, Klarna is a fintech company in the payment space, recently raising another mega round of around $1 billion, which puts the company's current valuation at over $31 billion. Full disclosure, LionTree was the honor to be part of this latest funding round. So thank you for including us, Sebastian. Klarna seeks to fundamentally transform the banking industry, which uh, notoriously has lacked transparency and uh, seemingly uh, lost focus on the evolving customer who's actively moving away from revolving credit lines to a simpler debit-based system. And I've always said that there's never really been a global banking model that's seamless, which I think uh, FinTech will endeavor to fix and rectify. But in Klarna's case, Klarna's growth trajectory is in full throttle with over 2 million transactions per day and 50,000 daily app downloads driven in part by the e-commerce boom during the COVID pandemic, which is as ever described as the accelerant of uh, digital behavior. With over 250,000 retail partners like Sephora, Etsy, Macy's, and many more, Klarna is very well positioned within the massive global retail market, which is expected to grow to $27 trillion by 2022, right around the corner. So welcome, Sebastian. And, uh, Thanks for joining us on our podcast, Kindercast today. Thank you for having me. I like that introduction. I, I may borrow some of those sentences from you. <laughs> I've, got, I've got many more. <laughs> I always tell people that uh, there are a lot of emerging tech markets in the world that uh, many people are not aware of, but Stockholm has become uh, uh, one that people are aware of, given that uh, companies like Spotify have listed 
here in the U.S. and direct listings. But um, you know, what's made Sweden such an interesting uh, place to do business? We have a lot of common friends like Henrik Lundqvist and Hans Vestberg that have moved to New York. And I've had the benefit of uh, hanging out with over here, but uh, we'll get you over here soon. But in the meantime, you know, what's made uh, Stockholm and Sweden such an interesting uh, hotbed for tech? I think that there is um, something interesting, right? So Atomico, Niklas Sandström, who co-founded Skype, who's also Swede, by the way, and obviously was acquired by eBay and then Microsoft. He runs a VC fund called Atomico, and they've done this study where they look at like uh, European unicorns and so forth, and, and globally as well. And they concluded that per capita, Stockholm has the most unicorns per capita, only second to Silicon Valley, right? I actually don't think that that comparison is entirely fair because Silicon Valley has historically attracted talent from the whole world that's gone to Silicon Valley to start companies. And very few people, assuming you're not from Borås or Malmö or Gothenburg, you don't go to Stockholm to start a company. Let's just be sure about that. So actually, I think what's interesting about Stockholm and Sweden is that it's probably the most successful per capita if you're entirely fair. And if I ask myself why, at least I believe, and there's a lot of scientific studies to support this, is that, you know, US tend to present itself as the land of promise, and to some degree, it definitely is. But actually, social mobility in Sweden is higher by research than in the US. And I think the the reason for that is that it's a country where I actually, well, yes, I do pay high taxes, but I have had the benefit as an immigrant kid myself with Polish parents coming from Poland, from communist Poland. I had free education and I had free healthcare. And I think it's a society that's built on the idea of giving everyone the prerequisites of being successful. But at the same point, a capitalistic system that allows you to actually explore success and build a business and so forth. So I think that that is definitely a breeding ground for entrepreneurship. In addition to that, it was also a country that during the time I was growing up was quite forward-leaning with Ericsson building networks. um, The internet penetration here was very high very early on. Broadband, you know, was driven. There was a broadband investment, infrastructure investment by government. And additionally to that, also actually when I was a kid, there was a PC at home reform where the Social Democratic uh, Party had the idea that it would subsidize computers for kids like myself who couldn't afford to buy a computer back then. So my first computer was subsidized by the government, and that allowed me to create computer literacy at a much earlier level. So I think it's very interesting, these things. And then finally, the obvious one is that when you grow a company in a country that has 9 million, now 10 million inhabitants, you think globally fairly quickly, I'll tell you, (laughs) because you just have a limitation. And I love, you know, I used to have Nigel Moore is one of the founders of Capital One on my board. And we had this hilarious discussion where he was telling me how Capital One was expanding to UK and to Europe. And then they realized that, you know, the problem they had with Europe is that every market was subscale. And I started laughing and I said, when you're from Sweden, every market is scale, right? <laughs> like there's no subscale market. So I think that like the globalization, the internationalization, the idea of being able to truly provide a great global solution is kind of inherited in the DNA of Swedish businesses. It's a topic I'm very passionate about. I love it. And and also a lot of long-term thinking I've found. And I've had uh, the pleasure of having a a friend, Martin Soderstrom of uh, the H&M family on a board of one of our companies. I spent some time in Bostad with him. So it's a great place to summer as well with the tennis tournaments and a lot of great friends in Sweden and feel fortunate to be close to a lot of families and do a lot of business. You know, to your point, even funny, because both H&M and Ikea 
you know, first grew in Sweden, then went to the German market. The German market became a powerhouse that paid for their ex global expansion because that's where they made all the profit. It's actually the exact same story for Klarna. Klarna grew really well in Sweden and finally established itself in Germany. Germany is still our largest market. We have 48 million users in, German, in the German-speaking markets. It is a very profitable market for us. It's paying for a lot of the expansion now into other markets. It's kind of funny to see that story repeat itself with every generation of Swedish businesses. Yeah. So let's jump right into your model and set the stage for our audience a little bit. So the Klarna's unique offering, let's go into it. It's called BNPL, which is the buy now, pay later model. Right. Uh, and it's reimagined. So you're actually taking on the risk of the consumer as opposed to traditional retail banking. Can you explain to everyone what the BNPL model is reimagined for you? Sure. Well, I think that like, first and foremost, this whole thing is also related to where we started, right? Because the, the market, the Sweden and German markets were debit card markets. So when e-commerce came along and when I started a company, I was 23 years old. This is now 16 years ago, so it's been a bit high. But what I recognized at that point of time was using a debit card online suck, right? So because you maybe you don't have any salary right now, so you don't have any money on the account, so you can't actually buy, right? Or picking this product online and I see an image of it and then I order it, on my debit card and turns out it looks differently or whatever, what's my security on a debit card? Like, how do I protect myself? How do I protect my money? And what if I do a return? The merchant may process that return for three weeks. Like on a credit card, you don't really bother because it's just your balance. But on your debit card, it's like, hey, give me my money back. I need that to spend it elsewhere, right? So debit cards are subpar for online shopping. And what's happened in the US and in the UK and so forth is, and ever since the financial crisis of 2007, there's been a massive shift away from credit cards to debit cards. So 56% of millennials in the US do not carry a credit card. They only have a debit card. So kind of the ironic thing for me is as, as Klarna was trying to figure out how to get into the US market, actually faster than we figured out it, the US market turned into Sweden, right? And you suddenly have this massive amount of debit card holders who simply struggle to shop online using a debit card. And so what we basically bring to the picture, what Buy Now Pay Later represents partially is the idea of like spreading the cost, allowing you that access to a credit line that you don't actually have on a debit card. It's giving you the ability to try before you buy, bring the product at home, look at it before you pay for it. It's giving you the option to, it's giving you a higher sense of security and safety, right? So these are the, the benefits. And then additionally to that, there is this paying for model, which is the most successful one right now in the US, which is you take a $100 purchase split and you split it and you finance it on installments, $25 every second week. Now, that is a model that is very powerful for the consumer because the difference with it, with the traditional credit that we recognize, whether it was the private labor credit cards, retail credit cards, co-brand cards, or credit cards, is that they were built on the idea that most of the people listening to this podcast, we're all benefiting from credit cards, loyalty points, interest-free credit, and so forth. But we seldom ask ourselves the question, who is actually paying for that? And the unfortunate answer is that there is a subset of customer, usually on the subprime end, who are heavily revolving and they're actually paying for that. So sorry to say so, but in essence, a credit card is actually taking from the poor and giving to the rich. And so it's a business model that is flawed at its core and it's going to be harder and harder to defend from a business environment that is quickly transforming into sustainability, sustainable business models, and so forth. And the benefit of the buy now, pay later model is that it's for interest-free installments. It's equal for everyone. Everyone gets the same. Doesn't matter where you are on that scale. 
And the merchant, however, is financing it because they are seeing the benefit in lifting conversion rate, average order value, and so forth, right? So the business case is driven by that. And the consumers are basically rewarding the merchant for offering a more sustainable and a more attractive credit offering than the kind of traditional one. Hey, hey, come in, get our private level credit card. And then by the way, we're going to push you into this revolving account with 29% interest rate. Yeah, that's that's the shift that we're seeing. And and it's not going to happen overnight. Like people, it's like like self-driving cars. You know, people always say like, it's going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but it's happening. And like by the end of this decade, there will be much less of the traditional type of credit as we recognize it. And there will be much more of this type of credit. Right. This is really the vanguard of, of the millennial generation relationship with their money and their spending, right? Because yeah. it's online shopping only, like influenced by social platforms and friends, not by advertising and their debtiverse and their debit cards, as you said, over a credit card. So you've unpacked that a little bit and you kind of go into the bigger question about how this generation really participates in commerce and trading. And this is the fintech evolution at its core. I mean, this is really what it's about. It's not really just kind of breaking down the banking system. It really starts to really kind of emanate from the way that spending patterns are evolving from the millennial generation of commerce and spending, not because it's the banking model disrupted, right? Yeah. No, I think you're totally right. And so I think what the core insight to us was when we started thinking about like retail banking, because we started as a payments company, we were solving a very simplistic problem. We're helping merchants grow their sales online. We're helping consumers shop online. But as we started kind of reflecting, what can this be? Where can we go, right? I usually describe this as like, there's this vision where if you think about it, like X amount of years from now, and I, again, like coming back to self-driving cars, it's like, you know, who knows when they're going to happen. I'm still debating whether my daughter would get a driver's license or not. She's eight soon, so... I still would say probably not. Uh, yeah. because in, in 10 years, I think the self-driving cars are totally here. But two years ago, if you read media, you would have thought that you know they're here today. Like, but that's, yep. that's not just not how the shift happens, right? But I think <laughs> if you think about directionally where banking is going, you realize that eventually, whether years from now, months from now, whatever, but eventually you wake up in the morning and your financial assistant, your computer tells you, I've analyzed your mortgage. I realize you're overpaying. I'm going to shift provider. I'll do it all for you. The only thing you need to say yes. And if you say yes, I'll save you five bucks a month. What is the brand loyalty to Capital One in that situation? What is the brand loyalty to uh, Wells Fargo in that situation? I'll tell you, it's zero. So the point is that the retail banking has traditionally been about return on assets, return on balance sheet. Those markets are going to be entirely decommoditized. It's going to be about perfect demand and supply functioning marketplaces. So anyone will be paying basically what is affordable to them based on their credit profile. And what that insights told us is that the future of retail banking is not about the return on assets or return on equity. It is about the data. It's about understanding the customer and truly serving the customer the best potential financial services and financial advice based on the insight of that customer's profile, right? So for you as a consumer, what can I do? How can I help you? How can I help you save time, save money? Which is kind of, in a way, quite nice to me because I'm a traditional person and I'm like, wasn't that what the bank man was supposed to do for me? Wasn't I supposed to go into my local bank guy and he was supposed to like really care about me and like help me not have to worry about all that finance stuff? Like, 
what happened with that? I don't know. Yeah. And suddenly there's like these shrewd models with pension funds and all these things going through the system. And you're like, hey, hey, what happened with that idea, right? Yeah, it's not really about the brand as much anymore. It's about the data that the brand has to create the efficient marketplace, which is really an exchange, which exactly. is really about finance. And that brings me to answer your question because what we didn't realize, so I said to myself, okay, so the future retail banking is the data and the insights and understanding of the customer. What does Klarna have that would allow us to win that game? Because that's going to be about big data processing, AI, understanding, and helping the consumers. What do we have? Well, who am I going to compete with? Well, I'm going to compete with, I mean, the big tech giants are always going to try. Apple, Google, like, I get it. They're going to be. There's going to be fintechs, Chime, Revolut, uh, Square, whatever. And there's going to be banks. There will be banks that will try to reinvent themselves. But why would Klarna have a significant position? We realize we have one thing that's extremely unique. That is, on every transaction Klarna process, we have SKU-level data. We do understand that a customer is not only spending $100 at H&M. Capital One knows that as well. But we know what sweater you bought, what size, what color, the exact product, the exact digital receipt on all of our transactions. That gives us a massive advantage from an understanding customer perspective that allows us to imagine what do services look like? What can I do with that data to provide better services to the consumer? And that insight is what's driven our innovation and our thoughts about how do we use that data? And how we're seeing that coming to fruition today already is when we work with retailers, we're able to drive them new customers at a rate they've never seen before, more than just providing a payment method, because we identify on a very, very unique basis on with understanding that customer spending across all categories. We can see and understand and we can provide the new customers that are relevant for them. Sounds like it'd be a great partner for Walmart. Sounds like they have more SKUs than anybody in the country here. Yeah, exactly. And I think that like the funny thing, obviously, is that as more as you go into kind of a big retail like that has all the SKUs, they will always say, well, we should do this ourselves. We should do this and that and whatever, right? But the thing is that, you know, outside of Amazon, there is a massive e-commerce market with like you know more than 50%. And I actually heard, I don't know if it's true, but in 2020, it's the first year that almost Amazon lost market share. So even though it's growing at a rapid pace, the rest of the market is growing even faster. I can tell you, we see that also because we see in our 250,000 retail portfolio, there's a massive amount of direct-to-consumer brands, Nike, Adidas. They're growing at a much faster rate than the retailers are. So the brands have actually figured out how to monetize efficiently online. And we're seeing a massive shift to where people are shopping directly from the brands as well. That makes total sense to me though, because 2020, the year of the pandemic, 2021, et cetera, that's when everyone became direct-to-consumer by necessity. Everyone yeah. had to go digital. Yeah. Direct so that you lose your competitive edge by necessity. So that makes sense in terms of the market share shift becoming more democratic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So now you obviously starting in Sweden, in terms of major operations, you're obviously now also in Germany, as you mentioned, where you operate an actual bank. You're in the UK. The US is going to become your biggest market soon. You're a global, hyper-paced, globally distributed company with a billion plus of revenue moving very fast. COVID happens. You know, what was that like as a CEO? Like bigger picture, Swedish base, how do you operate virtually in this kind of environment, raising capital? Some of your peers going public. What lessons do you kind of take from that period of time going forward to this post-pandemic environment? What was that like kind of dealing with a tidal wave here, fast-paced? 
Yeah, exactly. I think, look, um, well, first of all, like on the private perspective, I used to spend 30% of my time on planes jumping around between Midwest US cities where retailers have their headquarters. So to me personally, it's been a quite improvement in life. And I've been actually hanging out with my kids, which was quite nice. <laughs> so I'm not complaining. With that said, obviously, when the crisis became evident to us, and it was actually a very fascinating situation because I was in Europe and Europe was going into lockdown. And I had actually my last US trip where I went over to the US and US was literally a week after mentally was a week after. So I was in this dinner with a couple of people from media and so forth. And we were sitting and they were like, what do you think is going to happen? You know, you heard this thing in Italy. Is it really going to like be anything? And I was like, guys, I was there a week ago. I know I actually thinking a week from now, everything is locked down. Like this is just like, and they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then a week later, everything was locked down. Right. So, so it was just a very odd experience. I remember yeah. lax and hearing people on the first reported cases and stuff. So it was very odd. Anyways, with that said, I think for us as a business, I mean, obviously at first it was as for everyone else, a big uncertainty. And I think the thing that made us the most nervous was that we found out through our Chinese partners we got information that in Wuhan, e-commerce was actually locked down because e-commerce in Wuhan was served by motorcycle bikes who were coming in from outside of the city into the city serving the logistics. And that was locked down by the Chinese government. So that means that the whole e-commerce business was killed. The only thing that was still going on was grocery deliveries and so forth, right? Because that's what people needed. So there was a massive drop in e-commerce during the COVID lockdown in Wuhan originally. And we obviously started being very nervous. What was going to happen if the same was going to be happening in Europe, in the US to our business? There was also some indications that some of the staff workers in logistics centers wanted to go home and didn't want to work because of the risks. So for a period of time, we were quite nervous. But then we started very quickly seeing that volume was growing rapidly, groceries. Also in Europe, we have, uh, actually people don't know this, it's kind of fun, I'll mention it. We actually own the equivalent of Plaid in Europe, right? So we have an open banking system that has 35,000 banking connections. That is the same business as Plaid. Actually, Plaid is using it for its European business. And so one thing that I've learned is that like, if there's anything you need, as a company needs in a storm, if you need something the boat needs in a storm is a captain that holds steady in the steering and doesn't turn too quickly, right? So yeah. to me, it was all about like, let's have patience. Let's just sit here. Let's not overreact. Let's do what's wise and what makes sense. And let's be very focused. And we obviously had some very intense weeks at that beginning, uh, but just stay focused. Like don't shift. And see, we saw some competitors that even managed to you know fire some people let some people go off in some markets like that must have been quite painful and just a couple of weeks later realized that like that was a too early decision and so i think that that was to me crucial to just stay calm basically yeah i, I said to myself you're going to be judged in two ways about yourself one is how you are dealing with the pandemic today and how you are going to look back at yourself post pandemic having dealt with the pandemic and make sure there's no chasm between those two people. Because if you look back and you were acting too rash and said, oh, I probably should have been a little bit more poised, just make sure that you can see to the other side of the panic, which is clearly given your experience in the past, uh, maybe you're even your Swedish mentality, you look through uh, the uh, the noise a little bit to your benefit. But let me ask you, because 
I saw that you launched this influencer council, this monetization of influence concept where you created a best practices guide for social media influencers and brands advertising online, which I'm interested about because we've seen a lot of extremism around that. And it's an interesting trend that we've, we've been focusing on at LionTree as well, which is like the kind of mediafication or meification of media, this hyper-connected relationship between the creator and the consumer and where you can directly invest in people, it's kind of like celebrity SPACs or a bit cloud or kind of creating an individual identity off of these social media platforms. Walk me through this influencer council concept and like, how are you dealing with marrying finance into this creator community? Yeah, look, I think that when we think about e-commerce and commerce in general and retail, we really think about it as two things, right? So we think about there's the brand, the product. So there's the people out there that are really creative and, and can create amazing products or amazing brands. What do they want to do? They want to sell as much as possible, but that's one thing, obviously. And the second thing they want to do is they want to make sure, however, that their brand is visualized in a context that is on brand, right? So they want to present their brand. This is why Amazon is such a killer for them because you know nobody can present their brand in a fun way on Amazon's platform, right? So that's just why that's something that Amazon has lost the ability. And that's very different if you look at the Chinese T-malls of the world and so forth, because they actually allow brands to be brands. But that's that. You have the brand and product. On the other hand, the other part of commerce is discovery, right? And discovery can really be a multitude of different things. It can be, to your point, influencers, Instagrammers, they're promoting product. It can be Sephora that helps you find the right different makeup brands and so forth, right? It can be uh, YouTubers. It can be so many different things. And the whole discovery part of it is much more in flux. But what we believe is going to happen is eventually you'll end up, and I, I always kind of joke about this as, as some people of you would watch uh, Black Mirror. I'm still waiting for a Black Mirror episode in which a person goes to their neighbor for a barbecue and they're standing over the barbecue grill and they're talking. And then like one guy's like, oh, I love this sausages. What are these sausages? And the other guy's like, well, you know, these are the sausages. Like it's the new Benny's brand. And then when he's saying that, there's like this counter behind his shoulders, like ching ching, because he just earned commission for promoting Denny's sausages to his friend. It's almost like the old multi-level marketing model. Like that's where we're going to end up. And some people may have like ethical considerations or, or just saying like, how is that world going to be like, but that's actually where we're going to happen, right? So we're going to end up in a world where there are people, influences that we listen to, that we are inspired by. And they obviously get paid as well for the traffic and the generation they're creating. They're curating. If you go into a Sephora store, the local person who works in that store is essential because that person is actually really good at curating makeup and so forth on your behalf, right? Yeah. But why are they staying within the Sephora ecosystem? Why are they not curating online? Some of them are. Potentially, Sephora can provide them the best place to be that curator. These are the two uh, spaces. And so I think that like we're moving towards a world where that becomes much more kind of pure. You'll have the curation, you'll have the brand and discovery. And what's interesting for us as a payments company and as a shopping company and, and all the things that we are today is just thinking about what are the technologies that we can to your point about the, you know, the creators or the creative people and the consumers, what are the technologies that we can provide to 
enable that conversation, to enable that relationship directly, to enhance it without what unfortunately Amazon is doing is suppressing the creativity of that relationship. Because if you're a creator and you have this amazing brand and you're putting on Amazon, you're drowning. If you're a creator and you want to like curate your own products, Amazon doesn't allow you to really curate fun products and share them with friends and tell them like, we, these are great products that you should be buying. So they're not enabling that to happen, but we can enable that. We have wish lists in our app that allows anyone to go in and select any product online, be it an Amazon listed product or a product on Walmart or be a product on Sephora. And they can create an own list and share that list with friends. That's kind of our core mentality is that those two are the positions that will exist and whatever technologies and investments we can do to facilitate that relationship or enhance that relationship between the buyer and the seller, the curator and the brand and the actual consumer is just beneficial, right? So we're big fans of that. And I think a lot of companies are seeing that, but it's obviously a question of execution and finding models that actually work. Yeah, makes sense. So I want to ask you just a few more questions. So Sir uh, Michael Moritz is uh, not only uh, an investor from Sequoia and Klarna, but uh, also a longtime mentor for you, as I understand it. And uh, you've uh, said as a young college student, you've followed closely uh, also Sir Richard Branson's success and business philosophy, who I also have the pleasure of knowing and hosted him before a prior uh, podcast here. Sir Michael Moritz is also the chairman of the company here at Klarna. What leadership lessons have you drawn from them? And what are you like as a leader that the employees and uh, management team at Klarna takes from you? I mean, obviously, Richard, I just read his book, right? So I don't know him that well. With Michael, I've been working with him now for 10, 11 years, actually. So it's been quite a while. He's been on our board for that time. I'm not going to tell you the too long story here, but I think very quickly, for me as a founder and a very product-oriented founder, I found it fairly easy to run the company up until about 100 people. After that, I struggled a hard time. So I had a very difficult time between 2010 and 15 because I felt that we as a company were slowing down. I felt we were adding employees, we were adding people, but we weren't necessarily adding throughput. I think the level of innovation, the ability to execute, the ability to bring things to market was slowing down. And it was quite frustrating to me. And I was trying to figure out what we could change in our way of working and so forth. And really at around 2015, my second co-founder left and I was the only one staying at the company. And at that point of time, you know, we had iterated with everything that you read in all the management books. So we had Lego in the conference room, no Lego, ping pong tables, free Coca-Cola, you know, 20% of creative time because Google was saying that everyone needs to get 20% of creative time. So we tried that. Nothing happened. You know, we did everything that was in the books, right? But then in around 16, 17, and 18, we started finally with a totally new management team. And this was a management team that had been brought up in the company. They had worked with Klarna for multiple years. They had kind of climbed the internal ladder. They had proven themselves. This was not externally recruited people. They were internally recruited people that I had put together as a new team. And we started figuring out our own operating model. We were heavily inspired by Amazon, by Netflix, the Toyota way. We looked at a lot of different inspirations to ourselves and we formulated our own operating model. And it has totally revamped the speed and pace and the quality of execution of the company. So a lot of our investors, they ask us about how is your P&L doing? <laughs> What's your main KPIs? You know, et cetera. And this obviously are important. They're the scoreboard. It's like a soccer game. You know, how many goals have you made? In the end, that's what makes you win the game. But obviously what I'm looking at is more what I call the internal momentum. 
that basically represents when I go around in the company now, I can't do it due to COVID. But before that, when I look around, like how smart of decisions are we making? What's the pace of iterations? What's the pace of innovation? And what's the density of talent within the company? How many times do I stumble into somebody and get blown away by the quality of talent? Those are the things that I reflect on continuously. And what I've seen a very positive trend in regards to these things. I feel like we've figured a lot of that out in the last year. It is very complex because not only are we trying to build a tech company and grow globally, but we're building a bank. We have, you know, capital accuracy to take into consideration. We have 20 jurisdictions. I'm interacting regularly with the UK regulator and the Swedish regulator and the German regulator and the US regulator. So like, it's a fun, very challenging exercise to try to scale it. I actually don't know if a bank has ever grown. I mean, we're growing now volume-wise almost close to 100%. We're almost doubling volume now on an annual basis. Doing that while at the same time being bank and, and providing regulated services in over 20 jurisdictions, it's a nice challenge. for <laughs> so, so I think that I'm very happy that we had figured out now a way for us to work. And I, I think as a leader, what I've really appreciated with Michael in that is that Michael my impression, and obviously he should speak to this himself, but I feel that the way he has evaluated and supported me is he has had an unwavering support ever through my toughest days when people were questioning Klarna, when it was hard to raise money, when we didn't have the momentum that we have currently. And I remember I always joke about this meeting in New York when I was sitting with an investor and they were asking me, so where are you from, Switzerland, did you say? Like, you know, the, guy, the classical Sweden, Switzerland. I don't, I'm not sure if that guy could play Sweden on the map. But the point being is that Michael, what I appreciate with him, is very different as a board member. I think what Michael does is he looks at you and he asks himself, is this a person who's genuinely trying to do the best and is improving and learning and has the intellectual capacity and the speed of learning that's critical. And yeah. if that's the case, he just says, just go and do it. He's not going to ask you for unnecessary questions of reports of whatever. He's just going to say, do I trust this guy or not? If I trust him, let him be. Whenever he needs support, I'm going to give him support. When I know, I've asked Michael to open doors, when I've asked him for thoughts on things, he's always supportive, he's always available. I'm quite amazed that somebody with his track record and background is still like picking up the phone whenever I call him about anything. So that's pretty amazing. And I obviously understand that like if he would ever give up on his belief in me being solely dedicated to this business and being really long-term passionately driven about trying to make this an awesome business, I'm sure that he would start challenging more and so forth. But I think as long as I've shown to him that I have that unwavering focus, He's just been extremely supportive. And that to me has meant the world because this company hasn't always been in the kind of success and momentum it has currently. I thought I could ask for it. And I think we all are after the same goal, which is to be the uh, optimal version of ourselves and then hopefully provide an environment for our people to do the same, right? And right. then the company can do the same thing in its structure as well. We happen to be in an environment for the financial services industry, which is going through massive change, not only for an industry, but even for governments, right? We have Chinese digital currency being rolled out that now allows the currency from a government to be not just confined by borders, but to be global in nature, yes. right? Uh, for a digital currency. So you have crypto, you have Bitcoin, you have uh, government currencies becoming digital. 
and you have fintech revolutionizing merchandising and brands. So everything's evolving. And so you've been at it for a long time, but the next 15 years are going to be not only exciting, but incredibly um, challenging and one of massive adaptability. So I think probably benefits you to be private for the foreseeable future, but certainly a lot of pressure to go public given the depth of the financial markets. So any closing words about the, what you have in store for the next 15 years, given all these different cross currents and exciting moments in time as we speak, every day changes. I send the message, which I should probably ask sometime whether investors really appreciate that message. But <laughs> because my message for the future is the following, right? I believe, and I think that's partly the kind of belief in cryptocurrencies and so forth as, as well, is that, you know, if you look at retail banking, if you look at these services, I mean, the credit card industry is like a, I don't know, I think last time McKinsey made an estimate, it's like an $8 trillion business or something like, let's just first and foremost all acknowledge that that is not long-term sustainable. Like, this banking industry has been able to tax all global citizens for services that simply do not create that amount of value that it's taxing us for its services. So this industry will have to shrink. It will have to provide much more value to society and to consumers and will have to do so at a much lower rate than it has been doing for the last decades. So I'm foreseeing a market shrinking. But I am foreseeing being a brutal force in contributing to that change. And I hope that at the point of time, our shareholders will be deeply rewarded for supporting us in driving that transformation, because I think Klarna will emerge out of that as one of the global retail banking and payments players that will have a considerably market share of what will be a smaller market, but still a very big market, because it's still going to be massive. And I think that that's the thing that I'm trying to tell people. Like, just so you know, we're here to drive value for consumers. And I think that as much as people are criticizing digital today and they're unhappy with Facebook, this and that or whatever, I still believe, I'm a big believer in internet. I believe that it's actually driving a lot of value for consumers. And I think it will continue to do so. And I think that Klon has an opportunity to be one of those companies that helps transform this industry into something healthier, better, and more customer friendly. And I think as part of doing that, we'll create massive amounts of value for our shareholders. But it will be a smaller market than it is today because it's overtaxating the society today. This is a definition of disruption, in my view, and that you're talking about creating a lot of value for shareholders as well as consumers on a global scale. I was actually invited. There's four big retail banks in Sweden, right? So, And they obviously think about Klarna slightly different because to them, we're really an existential threat. So one of the CEOs, Annika Falkengren, is an amazing female. She's not left, but she actually did something really cool. She said to me once, she was like, can you come and speak to my top 500 managers at the bank and tell them, like, how are you going to disrupt us? So I had this really fun story, and I met with this massive bank. I came in into this big auditorium, and there's 500 top managers in, in this bank, and I'm supposed to tell them for 30 minutes how I'm going to disrupt them. And that was very really funny. I didn't feel very in a very friendly environment, to be entirely fair. But my key message to them was like, look, there are three phases of this. The first phase was simply the digitalization. You guys were not offering your services in a digital attractive way because you had underinvested in the digital experience. So the first opportunity was the disruption and creating better user experiences in a digital format. That's number one. Number two, however, 
is the disruption of your business models because some of your business models are unhealthy and they need to be changed, as I previously described, credit cards versus buy now, pay later. But the third one that people tend to forget is cost efficiency. If you look at the big retail banks today and you look at their total investments in IT, they are massive. This is another thing that people in the US are unaware of. Klarna is a chime. We have half a million after just two years. We have half a million credit card holders, debit card holders that are active. We have core banking services, salary accounts. We offer a lot of banking services in the European market, but we're offering that at a fraction of the cost of the big retail banks and systems that are more modern, more sustainable. They're cloud-based. They are you know, much cheaper, but they're offering a much higher quality service to our consumers. So actually at the end of this, it won't anymore be only about better digital experience and new business models. It will also be a cost play. It will simply be more efficiently built banking infrastructures that are lower. And that's what's creating another additional competitive element to this versus the traditional retail banks. Amazing. I love it. Sebastian, you did a great job in that auditorium and uh, a great job for the podcast. So uh, thank you so much. I look forward to tracking all the progress and being with you every step of the way. And Love to uh, be part of this disruption of the uh, financial services community for the benefit of uh, value creation. So thanks very much uh, for joining us and um, appreciate it. And we'll have a, a drink together soon, hopefully. <laughs> I hope so too. Thank you very much, Ari. I appreciate it as well. Thank you for having uh, me. My pleasure. I'll see you soon. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Ever feel like you're missing out on the day's biggest news? Stay in the loop with our Take a Break newsletter. Each weeknight, we curate the most important stories in media, tech, and everything in between. You'll always be in the know on the day's key trends. Sign up for Take a Break for free at kindredmedia.com.